0: Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne with The Weekend Film Tech. This is the podcast that covers whatever is happening in the world of filmmaking technology. This is for the week of July 18th, 2019. And I'm covering a couple things this week. I'm covering the new, you can see it if you're watching this on YouTube, the Ronin SC. Which I've got in my hands right here, which as I record this isn't out yet. Because I record on Tuesday for the Thursday morning show. But it's out on Wednesday morning so I can talk about it. I'm also going to talk about the A7R4. From Sony, uh, those two stories are big enough. I'm only going to cover those two stories, and then I'm going to simultaneously do a Hey Professor and make up for a failure of last week's Hey Professor for Twitter user Boy with Tail, abbreviated BTS. I don't know how Boy with Tail anyway. Twitter is a mystery to me, but he has a good question, and I'm going to give the most thorough answer I can. All that and more this week on the Week in Film Tech. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Charles Hain. Top story this week in film technology, or affordable film technology. I mean, I cover the expensive stuff, but the stuff we might actually someday own is the new Ronin SC. I'm holding it up on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, you can see it. Ronan SC. Why is this interesting? So first off, DJI. Everybody probably knows DJI because they make the most popular drones. They used to make a, a drone called the Phantom, which is apparently officially discontinued now. I just found out. I knew they hadn't updated it in years. I didn't know it was like done, done. But it is done, done. Although apparently you can still find them in a few retailers. Pretty heavily discounted but for the most part, Phantom's done. They make the very popular Mavic line, the Mavic 2, which is out right now, which is super cool. Um, and then at the higher end, they make... Uh, the Mavic 2 is where a filmmaker would want to start. There's a drone called the Spark, but it's not for filmmakers. But the Mavic 2, for filmmakers, uh, Mavic 2 Pro, Mavic 2 Zoom, really nice imagery. You're seeing stuff in music videos. You might even see it in some lower-end commercials. Uh, then Inspire 2, which is the like mid-range, which has got a built-in camera, and then the top-of-the-line Matrice which flies like the big cameras, reds, when you want a red in the air, when you want Lex in the air. Now, they also make gimbals, which means uh, stabilizers for your camera that are actively stabilized using motors in order to stabilize the camera, not just weights like a Steadicam or a Glidecam would. And they make, you know, Movi sort of exploded on the scene with the original Movi a few years ago. And Movi and DJI with their Ronin platform really compete for the marketplace. And you see a lot of Ronin. You see a lot of Ronin. I mean, you see Movi out there too, especially at the really top end. But at the sort of mass market, you see a lot of Ronin. Last year, they came out with... You know, they're big, heavy gimbals, the Ronin 2. It's amazing. I did a video review of it that's probably somewhere on this channel. Love that stabilizer. At the sort of affordable end, last year they came out with something called the Ronin S. Under a grand, I think it was 650 Might have been less. Hold it in your hand. It's a one-hand grip. It's a stabilizer that's really designed for all sorts of cameras. I mean, theoretically, it had an eight-pound limit. So theoretically, you could strap in like an Alexa Mini and a Sony Prime. Don't do that. All stabilizers are going to behave their best with a little bit of overhead. If it says 4.4 pound payload limit, you should probably try and... Build a three and a half pound package, like really pushing the edge of the payload Then You're always going to burn your motors out faster. Your results aren't going to be as good. You're going to go through batteries faster. It's not ideal. They've just come out less than a, around about exactly a year after the Ronin-S with the SC, which is what we're talking about today. It came out yesterday, Wednesday, the 17th. The SC, first off, the price point is stupid. It's like 450 for the plane stabilizer, and then it's 550 for the stabilized package, roughly, depending on wherever you buy, which is a scorching good deal. So let's just talk about what you get out of the plane unit, which I think is pretty cool. Single-handed stabilizer, batteries removable, that gives you about 10 hours of battery life. That's really focused, 4.4 pound limit, which means mirrorless cameras. This is for your EOS Nikon Z's, Panasonic S-Line's. This is for uh, your Fujifilm, although right now it only supports the X-T2 and the X-T3. I'm shooting this on an X- X-H1. I'm that one weirdo who loves the X-H1. Fuji, I love the X-H1. I hope there's an X-H2 soon with all of the sensor tech from the X-T3 in the X-H2. I know I'm the only fan, but could you do it just for me? So with the Ronin SC mirrorless, that's their target. You're going to want to build like a two to three pound package of like mirrorless and a prime. You're going to be super happy. But hey, these cameras are hugely popular. They're selling like hotcakes, Sony A7S 2 stuff like that. Great cameras. You see a lot of cinema shot with them. The SC is really targeted at that. It's 40% lighter than the Ronin-S was, and it's 30% smaller. And this is great. You're going to be able to fit into some smaller areas. It's going to fit into a smaller case. But also, that lighter is going to be really great on your arms over the course of a really long day. Lighter camera, lighter gimbal, lighter package going to be able to do shots for a lot longer without being as stressed out, which is super great. So the SE is that the SC is small enough that you might need an adapter bracket for the Blackmagic pocket. I'm going to be honest, because the Blackmagic pocket's super wide. And I wonder, I got to get my hands on a pocket and see if I can fit it in there. Because yeah, I don't think you're going to be able to fit a pocket in there. And I think that's actually, it's funny because I love the pocket, but the pocket's lack of internal image stabilization sort of kills me at that price point. Like I'd go GH5 or I would go Fuji X-H1 uh, instead, but... Combine the Blackmagic Pocket with the Ronin SC, if you can make it fit with a bracket, and then for like $2,300, you have a real dynamo, well-stabilized, raw-capturing system. So maybe that's a thought. Now, the two big standout things of the SE, other than the 40% weight savings, but you, and it's a smaller battery, which is nice. You still get 10 hours out of the battery. I wish you could buy like a kit of three batteries and a charger. That'd be really great. I don't know if that exists yet. I haven't seen it on the site. But what you get out of it is really two super cool, amazing app integrations. The first one, is active track now. I, the re, that's the reason why I told you about all the DJI stuff at the beginning. So in their drones, they have stuff like active track, where you can fly the drone up and then you can tap and say, "That's my target." Circle that target, or like follow that person who's on the bike and make sure they stay in frame and that kind of thing. And you can actively track objects in frame. Very useful in drones. They've brought active track to a stabilizer. Now you have to add your cam- your phone to the uh, camera. So they have a little mount, and you mount your phone on top of the camera. And then you turn your phone camera on and you click a face. And then as you move the stabilizer around in space, it keeps that face in frame. So as opposed to what we were doing before, like, you know, a a really classic one is you booked a corporate event and you have to do a walk and talk with the CEO where the CEO like wanders around and shows you the space. Now, all you have to worry about is making sure that shot stays smooth. And then you click on the CEO's face and as the CEO turns left and they turn right and they walk around the space and they show things, the CEO is never going to leave frame. It's going to keep panning and tilting if it has to if the CEO comes up close and you need to tilt up in order to keep them in frame. Or if you're action or sports, if I'm out there and I'm doing some sort of like skate video and I want to be on a bicycle, I just have to worry about keeping the Ronin in a good place and then the camera is going to stay framed on the action. This is super awesome. I even thought, because, you know, the Ronin SE comes with this little built in tripod, that there might be some application here for the YouTube videos. Like, maybe I rig it up where it, like, follows me as I bounce around. I don't know. We'll see. Um, I have to buy one first. Right now I'm playing with a loner. So, ActiveTrack is super cool. ActiveTrack coming to gimbals is super cool. You're not, it's not gonna matter at the high end, right? At the high end, you might have two people holding a Ronin, or you might have the Ronin to like, slung up on a crane arm, and then you've got a separate operator running a separate control. This isn't ActiveTrack isn't something that, like, when I'm out with a 20-person crew, I'm going to care about. But if I book a little corporate job, I haven't done a corporate job in a while, but, like, I'm doing a promo for something, I'm doing a sports thing, I'm running around with my baby, ActiveTrack is a super cool feature. Uh, The other cool feature that's app-enabled they have, so DJI is this cool thing called the Force Pro. Basically, we have tremendous, you know, if you're a filmmaker, you've spent, years with a trip with a fluid head tripod in your hand panning and tilting and following the scene and there's this like muscle memory built into that so the force pro is this very cool device dji came out with i ran a review that i'll include in my links that you bolted on your tripod head and then as you pan and tilt with your tripod head the ronin 2 pans and tilts it's great it's bringing this like intuitive response that everybody is used to to operating a remote head super nice now dji just came out with force mobile. So you have your phone, your phone has an accelerometer in it. So as you pan and tilt your phone, your phone knows you are panning and tilting. And so you can sync up your phone to your uh, gimbal. And so now you have one person who's physically holding the gimbal. And then the other person's holding the phone that's synced up with the gimbal. And as the phone pans and tilts, the gimbal pans and tilts. So even if you're like on a two person job, right? You can have like the DP holding the gimbal and then the director can hold the phone and pan and tilt and watch their shot, dial in exactly the way they want their shot to dial in, which is super cool. The force thing I thought was really interesting. You could also bolt your phone to a tripod and use a classical tripod head to do tripod head style moves with it. I think it's, these are the two things that I think are really interesting about the SC. Obviously the weight savings and the price are fascinating, but these two app integrations really... Like, it's a great use of technology from, you know, the fact that they're also making these big things like the Ronin 2 and Matrix drones and Inspire drones that, and the Mavic 2. That technology is trickling down into the um, Ronin SC in a way that I think is super interesting. Also interesting about the SC is that it comes, the Pro Kit comes with a run-stop cable. And it also comes with a focus motor. Now, the whole thing with Ronin-S has always been, Ronin-S has a little focus knob on it, which is great, because focus is the thing everyone forgets about a stabilizer. Everybody's like, I'm going to use a stabilizer, and I'm going to be free, and shots are going to be wherever. But, like, focus is the big thing. Like, if you don't have some way of controlling focus, you don't have a wireless follow-focus setup of some sort, that's the thing everyone always forgets about stabilization. So Ronin-S, super cool, got a knob on the body. You can turn it, and it will control the internal focus On your camera, because most of these cameras have internal focus control. Doesn't work with Sony, doesn't work with a few others, but like Canon, Nikon, Panasonic, it works. I tested it with the GH5. It was super awesome. So it's a little bit much for your brain to be like framing and operating a gimbal and focusing, but younger people might be better at it. I'm 40. Maybe if you're like in high school learning it now, you will get really good at it. And like neural pathways will form around it. But what's fun about it is... Uh, You know, Sony's unsupported. My GH1, my XH1 is unsupported. So this time they also included a focus motor in the pro kit. So it's an external focus motor. You can wrap a ring around the prime and use the focus motor. So they're really working hard in an affordable package, like 550 bucks for the pro kit to make it so that you can do some really fascinating dynamic shots. And that is super cool. So yeah, I'm going to actually, they've loaned it to me, I think, for a week. So I'm going to do a little hands-on video. If that is done before my MailChimp goes out, I will send the link out to that too. I played with it hands-on a little bit. I like the weight a lot more than the Ronin-S. Especially when you're working with these like lighter weight cameras, it feels like a really interesting combination where the storytelling is going to offer. There's going to be a whole lot of interesting storytelling opportunities. Uh, the other thing I have to say is, oh my God, the release cycle time is getting really fast. I feel like I just played with the Ronin-S, and now the SC is out. I feel like I just learned about the Alexa LF, and now the LF Mini is out. I feel like the film industry is reaching this, like, incredibly rapid product cycle. And um, it's kind of exhausting. It's a little less exhausting with the Ronin, because it's like a $600 thing. The Alexa LF, a $100,000 thing. You hope you have more than a year before the next one comes out. You know, the SC, more of a consumer product, the Ronin-S, like or prosumer, like occasional professionals but I think we're in a really interesting place with the SC. I think there are a lot of interesting sort of app integrations happening with the SC and I think it is uh definitely the big film technology news of the week. All right, second story, Sony A7 R4. Man, there's so many pirate jokes waiting for me. All right, so the traditional breakdown is, you know, the in the alpha line you've got like the A7, which is like the baseline. And then you have the a7R, which is more resolution. Um, and then you have the a7S, S for movies. I'm sure there's something better for that, but I'm going to say S for movies um, or cinema. And uh, that was, you know, that was sort of their deal. And the, the huge hit with filmmakers was the a7S 2 Now, the reason, so, and, so just a little insight into the Sony like camera platform, the full frame mirrorless, they invented this category. Before this, mirrorless cameras had smaller sensors, MFT size sensors, micro four-third size sensors, um, the GH line, the Olympus line, uh, Fuji's line, although Fuji's size is not actually MFT. It's Fuji's own thing because it's Fuji. You got to do their own thing. And so Sony came out with the Alpha line and the Alpha line is a full frame, meaning full still 35 millimeter frame size, the same size as like a 5D Mark IV, but no mirror. And again, if you know, always good to have a refresher, the fun of no mirror means you can design lenses differently. The lens mount has a much shorter flange focal distance, which means that the back of the lens is much closer to the sensor, which really changes and somewhat in some ways simplifies lens design. It also means it's really easy to like adapt a mirrorless sensor to a PL mount and things like that. So you've got a lot of flexibility and benefits to mirrorless. Sony basically invented full frame mirrorless. And then weirdly, nobody else copied them for like three years four years before Canon came out with the EOS R and Nikon came out with the Z-Line and now Panasonic with the S1. They owned it. And so the bigger sensor in a, the mirrorless part improved lens design. The bigger sensor in, increased low light sensitivity, right? A bigger sensor for the same number of pixels means bigger photosites. sites. Bigger photo sites like a bucket in the rain need less light to get filled, right? A bigger bucket needs less rain to to get water in its bottom. And uh, the bigger photo site needs less light to receive an image. So what everybody loved about the a7 Mark II is all of the sudden, you know, there are all these YouTube uh, Vimeo videos of like, I'm shooting at 25,000 ISO and it's acceptable images. Um, there's usually noise correction involved at 25,000 ISO, but you could get some amazing low light results out of that camera. It was astounding. Then Sony came out with the a7 III and the a7 III had some good video features. Like, equivalent video features to the A7S2, maybe. And then there was no A7S3, which was odd. And then, like, words started to come out from, like, Sony reps and whatnot that, like, you know, they really might not do an A7S3. Because the A7R has been a huge hit for them. And, and maybe the A7 III is just enough. So, we had the 3s, the Mark 3s, the R and the plane. And then Sony had a big announcement today, or Tuesday. And, like, it was all embargoed and, and all of this stuff. And the announcement, the rumors were... A7S3 8K video. And then some people sort of broke embargo and bar going, were like, it's not an A7S3, it's an A7R4 8K video. And then it was released as a 4K video. But it's a Mark IV. Now, I, you know, companies can do whatever they want. They could come out with the Mark IV, or the A7R, and then still come out with the A7S Mark three. But it doesn't seem likely. Like at this point, because they've all sort of been in generation together. Like, the A9 Mark II might still come out at some point in the future. Like, the A9's, the Mark level hasn't really stayed the same. But because the A7 IIs all were around each other, it seems unlikely at this point that there will be an A7S three. Which, fine, the A7 III is a beautiful camera, but weird. Because, honestly, the specs wouldn't even have to be that amazing to make it a hit. Now, what's also interesting about this is this is an A7R. And usually with the R's, they don't really focus a ton on the video features in the marketing because the a7R is all about resolution. And when you go for that super high resolution, this is a 61 megapixel camera, by the way. It is, their whole marketing thing is a full frame, um, medium format quality and a full frame sensor. And like between pixel shift and all sorts of other tech, like 61 megapixels is going to be phenomenal. There will be people who are like still photographers who work on billboards who are going to love that. And, you know, the 4K video comes from a 6K sample. Now I don't know how they are debaring, but like I, I will take four I will take six K that has been properly debared to four K over four K pixel for pixel. Internal debairing doesn't make me super excited, depending upon how intense the processor is, but maybe we'll get raw out over HDMI or something. But regardless, they had some video features listed. Like it seems like Sony is maybe positioning this to sort of serve both markets which is interesting for a 61 megapixel camera because that usually means really tiny photo sites which usually doesn't mean amazing low light and low light wasn't a big part of the presentation and low light is what we loved as filmmakers because you know we don't have still photographers always have the flexibility of changing their exposure time right like there's not enough light they just expose for one eighth of a second or something filmmakers don't have that we're sort of stuck with our exposure time so we need we tend to need wider apertures and more light than still photographers do depending on what they're shooting so it's a Interesting move. Look, there's a marquee feature here. And the marquee feature is eye detect, autofocus, and video. Um, eye detect, audio f- autofocus is something still photographers love. You know, the processor, of the camera can identify the eyes and say, hey, that's an eyeball. Hooray, eyeball. They identify the eyeball. And they follow the eyeball and focus as things move around. This one does humans have pets, which is super exciting. Because um, pets are cool. And it works in video, which is impressive. They showed one 10-second demo clip, which was weird because... That's like a marquee feature, and you should have like a whole 30-second sizzle reel of all that And like one clip. It was awesome to watch, but didn't quite feel as polished as I usually associate with Sony. Regardless, I autofocus in video. Bring it. Bring it. I auto... Really good I autofocus in video. We would be watching. It would make me consider moving the show over to that. So that as I did that, I'd stay in focus. Interesting stuff happening from Sony. A7R4. I'm thinking probably it means no A7S three ever. A7S might be done. They might be thinking that you should just and actually I know people who did just buy an A7 three, and maybe people will just get the A7S, the A7R four. Um, if the Eye Detect autofocus is good enough, that could be a killer app for some users. Up next, hey Professor. So I had a good hey Professor question this week, which is user boy with tails. Uh, abbreviated BTS on Twitter, reached out and said, hey, I'm doing a documentary on the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema 4K. Hundreds of hours of footage. Talk to me about media management. So first off, I listed in Hey Professor last week, I talked about Shotput and I talked about uh, Silverstack from Pomfort. And both of those are amazing download tools. And I talked about how you really want to use a download tool because not only does it checksum verify your copy, so it makes sure that the, the card and the file on your hard drive are pixel for bit, pic- are bit for bit the same file size right which is important so you always want to do a checksum verified copy uh to prevent corrupt bits from ruining your copy you also want tools like documenting all of your copies so you can see like a report of the downloads you did and stuff like that and they're both great for that but i forgot to mention hedge which is crazy because hedge is great um i always say when i tell my students i always like oh there's three options there's hedge shopput and pomfert so thank you twitter for letting me know that I forgot to mention hedge, and I'm sorry, hedge. And it looks like hedge caught. So Twitter called me out on it. Twitter user, I do not have their Twitter handle in front of me, but called me out on it and copied hedge on it. And hedge was like, "Yeah, well, hey, that's that's the way we learn, right? Thank you for calling me out, Twitter. I sincerely appreciate it." However, so first off, obviously, even if it's hundreds of hours of footage, please use some sort of download tool. Hedge shotput. Pomfret Silver Stack, one of the tools that's going to give you reporting to make sure you can feel confident you've downloaded a card and check some verification to be sure that it's a bit-for-bit bit copy and all of those great things you get out of those tools. However, you talked to me about hard drive backup strategy, so I'm going to talk to you about the strategy that I use. And the strategy I use is bare, as in B-A-R-E, as in naked, N-E-K-K-I-D hard drives. I buy a toaster. Right now I'm using the other world computing, uh, Thunderbolt toaster. Uh, I happen to use it because it's Thunderbolt and I like Thunderbolt and I feel like it's really robust. It's a little pricier. There are cheaper toasters out there. And what a toaster is, is it's literally a box that has two slots on the top that you can stick hard drives into. And they're bare hard drives. They're hard drives that are designed to be inside a computer. So why do I do this? Well, so if you go out and you buy and like, look, I have many CalDigit hard drives. I love CalDigit. is great. Uh, is wonderful because you can like call them and they answer the phone. I remember once calling CalDigit because we were having a problem and they were like, hey, CalDigit. And I was like, can I talk to customer service? And they were like, yeah, that's me. And that walked me through the problem. CalDigit's great. Recommend them. I've had great experiences. have had great experience with G-Drive some good the C experiences. Right now I'm using a lot of Samsung T5 SSDs just because they're so cheap. Um, But I've also got some CalDigit Tufts around the office. I've got a lot of hard drives. But whenever I do a project, I want to download the footage. But all of those other drives i talked about are drives I'm using all the time. That Samsung T5, it went with me to Maine last week. It came back. It's in my book bag. It's in my pocket while I ride my bike. It needs that rugged case around it for durability, right? That's what the The CalDigit Tough with that rubber case is all about. My camera originals, I actually don't need that durability because literally all I do is I download to them. I I pull off to like a working drive my low-res proxy files, whatever those are. I might have to render them or if the camera automatically made them, I just copy them over. And then my camera originals, my like downloaded to set hard drives, I put in a fireproof safe. I have one in a storage facility. I have one in my office. I put them in a fireproof safe and I'm not going to touch them again till the end. Um, insurance companies want you to have three copies. Many independent filmmakers survive on two copies. Um, three copies is probably better. And, um, so I buy a toaster. Like I said, I use the other world computing toaster that has slots on top and you can slide in bare drives. And I use bear drives because they're so incredibly cheap, right? Because I'm not paying for case. I'm not paying for power supply. I'm not paying for all that stuff that I'm not going to use when it's in the fireproof safe, right? I don't need everything all around it. I don't need all that other hardware. I just literally need a hard drive. Stick it in the toaster. Use Shotput or Hedge or Pomfort to make two identical checksum copies to each of those hard drives. Put them in my fireproof safes. Don't even think about them again until the end of the project. So that's what I'd recommend for you. You're shooting hundreds of hours of footage. It sounds like uh, you're like thinking about your media strategy. And that's the, a media strategy that has worked for me on. A variety of projects for a very long time now. It's a media strategy I recommend to my students when they're working on my thesis projects and other projects. It's an affordable way to have terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of storage. Um, the drawback to this is a bare drive is more delicate. Um, you know, you you go on Amazon or B&H Adorama and you look for an S, SATA drive, a SATA drive, and you put in like eight terabyte SATA drive, and it'll be way cheaper than an eight terabyte USB drive or an eight terabyte Thunderbolt drive but it just comes in like a cardboard box. And so, you know, many people buy plastic cases for them. Many people like figure out other ways to keep them safe. I actually have a Pelican case with slots where I use the Pelican case that is specifically designed for hard drive storage to take them to and from set. So they're secure. Um, But yeah, I just do that. And then I download the card straight to them and then I pop them in a safe, and I feel like that is the most cost-effective way to work. And then at this point, I feel like everybody should just have their working drive be an SSD drive, a working drive being the drive you're constantly checking all the time that you're using to edit off of or whatever, which again, shouldn't have any camera originals on it. You should treat your working drive under the assumption it will die. There should never be a moment where your working drive dies and you lose anything. Your working drive should only have like, transcoded dailies or whatever that you could recreate from the files you have in your closet and like project files, but your project files should also be backed up on the cloud or Dropbox or something like assume your working drive will die. It'll fall in front of a subway train. It'll get stolen, whatever will happen and treat your working drive like a, like a utility that is disposable. And then make sure you treat your camera original drives as something safe and to be protected, and you want to pull it out of your fireproof safe as seldom as possible. While well, we're talking about fireproof safes, I have first alert, and I got that recommended to me by the wire cutter, and I bought two of them, ones in my storage facility and ones here, and uh, you know that way if my build if my office building burned down, I still have a copy of my media in my fireproof safe in my uh, storage unit. Because if my building burned down, I'm assuming the first alert wouldn't survive. I mean, they did a whole bunch of tests a so fireproof safe, but yeah, that is the media strategy I recommend. Now, also in your question, boy with tails, you asked uh, I'm going to be shooting a large media format for the first time, and that's interesting to me. Which is, I wonder if you're going to be shooting Cinema DNG because you mentioned the Blackmagic Pocket. So here's the thing: I love shooting RAW. RAW is great. Cinema DNG is a monster format, and you mentioned documentary with hundreds of hours of footage. I would do a test. And see how you feel about the image quality of ProRes. Like maybe ProRes 422 HQ, maybe ProRes 444, and compare it to Cinema DNG and do some testing. Because honestly, if I was shooting a doc on the Blackmagic Pocket, I would really—I mean, first off, I'd pester constantly Blackmagic to make them release Blackmagic RAW for the Pocket. Um, I think that's out. If that's not out, it should be out soon. Come on, give us give us RAW like black magic raw in that pocket because the black magic raw format is way smaller files than cinema dng cinema dng files are big black magic raw files have some compression in them and are more robust Um, i would really push for that but i would also really look at prores and see if that's a usable format Uh, a, a lot of people don't know this but like holy cow, many Alexa movies until very recently just shot ProRes. Because with Alexa, you couldn't often afford Alexa, but you couldn't afford, like, the external codex recorder to shoot raw. And, like, you know, a uh, DP I know was like, oh, yeah, default, under $10 million, you're shooting Alexa ProRes. Like, uh, and, like, he's, he's saying $10 million budget for the movie. He was like, yeah, under that, you just did ProRes. Uh, obviously, that changed now. There's a lot more internal raw features in Alexa than there were three or four years ago. But, like, I would do some tests. And I would consider a ProRes format, perhaps even plain ProRes, uh, do some tests, look at it through your whole pipeline. But uh, Cinema DNG is not always the best. And it, it certainly is not what I'd recommend for a documentary. Um, all right. This has been the Week in Film Tech. You can always reach me at uh, Instagram, on Rekke, O-N-R-E-K-K-E. Um, Twitter is at Charles Hain. Uh, go to weekinfilmtech.com, which is the website for this podcast, to subscribe Uh, please like if you enjoy this tell your friends about it um, who are also filmmakers and might find this interesting and be sure to sign up for the mailing list if you want an email every week being like hey here's a new episode and here's the links to the stuff i talked about in the episode yeah hit me up i hope you guys all enjoy the show i will see you the next week enjoy making movies